Testing, testing. Is anyone out there? Chris? Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is one of my favorite Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary professors, Chris Date. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, so, so glad you're here. This is so cool. And yes, some people have noted that uh, that Pritchett is not with us today, and um, I realize that that can be um, frightening, and uh, we're a little unsure <laughs> how, to, how to act. Uh, but there's good news because for those that don't know, we now have a second channel more devoted specifically to theology, although there's some apologetics there, and that is Trinity Radio Extra. And I just released an episode today where uh, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett and myself are talking about eschatology and why we're so scared to talk about eschatology. What are our excuses? And so uh, you'll want to go over there and check that out. And on that note, Chris... You have um, a debate coming up on that issue with someone. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so in just two weeks from tomorrow, Tuesday, August 11th, I am debating what's known as a hyper-preterist or what sometimes goes by the term full preterist. Um, we're going to be debating the nature and timing of the general resurrection. So as you know, the Bible teaches and Christianity teaches that one day in our future, all humankind is going to rise from the dead bodily. Um, the saved will be transformed and made immortal and live forever with God, and then of course whatever happens in hell is going to happen to the others. Um, 
Hyperpreterists, however, believe that all biblical prophecy, including the prophecy about the resurrection of the dead, has occurred in our past. Um, and that means that they've got to explain the resurrection differently. Um, they can't appeal to, they can't affirm that all humankind was raised bodily from the dead. So they've either got to make it a corporate thing that has to do with the body of Christ being raised, the, the, the body of Christ, meaning that all of us believers are somehow spiritually raised in him, like restored or something like that. And then there's another view that um, other hyperpreterists defend. But either way, it's, in my opinion, abject heresy. And um, I'm looking forward to defending Christianity uh, on that topic. So, um, and, and if people want to watch it live, it'll be streaming on Eli Ayala's YouTube channel. It's called Revealed Apologetics. Uh, again, Tuesday, August 11th, and I think it's at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Well, that that is exciting. And for any atheists that are in the uh, chat or later see this video, you know, one of the things that I think is a misnomer about theology and, and if you become a Christian is that it means that your quest for knowledge, your inquiry, it all just stops with <laughs> God did it or something. But for those of us who are um, involved in theological debates and, and uh, like to have these sort of discussions, actually it just opens up a whole new realm for you of discussion and it's an exciting thing. So uh, we're looking forward to that, Chris. Um, let's jump into this pretty quickly because we have I think 19 clips but don't let that scare you away this I think is a good not long. one um, it, just to set up a little bit we had done a video response to this man way 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 back like two years ago in a series that we called the Wyma series why I'm a whatever Mormon atheist whatever and um, and, and we did a response to this guy but uh, so, so Chris said, hey, do you know who this fellow is? And I think that's the guy we responded to. And he said, well, I've got a friend I'm going to be talking about this with, and I think it might be good to do a response video to it. So I took a look and love the topics that get touched on because it allows us to unpack them. So, um, so you know, that's, that's really all the preamble we need. So, Chris, anything you want to say before we jump right in? Uh, no, I think everything that I want to say I can say as responses to these clips. So I'm ready to go. Okay, someone says, my mic is a little quiet. I'll see what I can do about that. Maybe that'll help it just a little bit. All right, let's jump in and let's hear what Morg, is that his name, Morg? That's at least what he goes by, yeah. And when you first sent it to me, I thought that his name was 100% Morg. And I was like, <laughs> is this, is this, <laughs> man, I can make a joke about 100% alcohol, but I won't right now. Let's go right into it with intro. I'm going to give you 100% proof that God does not exist. We're going to lay this to rest once and for all. Now, is this even possible? Can you prove that God doesn't exist? A lot of people think it's not possible. Even many atheists think that it's impossible to prove that God doesn't exist, though they believe that it's highly unlikely that he does. So is it possible? Yeah, it is. The truth is, it's actually pretty easy to prove that the God of the Bible doesn't exist. The problem is that most people aren't smart enough to understand the proof. Not only am I going to give you 100% proof right now that the God of the Bible does not exist, but by the end of this video, I'm going to show you that something does exist that's stranger than you could have possibly imagined. So, are you smart enough to understand Let's begin. I have faith in you. Chris, I don't know if we're smart enough. 
I don't know either, but this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted you to play this sort of opening clip is because um, this is something that he says a few times in the video. And if you go and watch some of his other material, uh, he says similar things. It, it, it's the, the material he's presenting will strike you as true, provided that you're smart enough and capable enough. It's very manipulative uh, in that way. And, you know, he talks about how he's going to reveal things you would have never imagined by the end of the video. And and um, what that sort of hints at is, is if you go and watch his videos, what you'll discover is that Morg is very much like today's L. Ron Hubbard, um, which is the founder of Scientology. You see, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer who started a, uh, a fake religion called Scientology that at its core was rampant science fiction, just total absurdities and, and, and science fiction. Well, in the same way, Morg is a performance artist who a few years ago was on AMC's Freak Show. Really? He was a sword swallower. Yeah, he was a sword swallower, um, but, but also like stuck pins through his skin and stuff like that. And and likewise, he is he is creating a fake religion called Hyperionism, and um, the only and at its core is all sorts of science fictiony gobbledygook. Um, the only difference between the two of them is that uh, you don't learn about the gobbledygook of Scientology until you get at the highest levels, where you discover the Emperor Zenu and, and the history of the universe in in as Scientology teaches. Whereas you get you get this stuff from the very beginning in Hyperionism, and yet. It's Strangely, it doesn't turn people away. It's, it's, it's really bizarre. And if you question whether this guy really is the leader of some sort of cult, just consider he's got over 500,000 followers on his Facebook page. He, he makes over $4,000 every video from his Patreon patrons, of which there are over 500. Um, and there are people that have come out of the Hyperionism movement and have said this is a dangerous cult. So um, one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to responding to this is because I want to dissuade people from being becoming swept up by this cult, which I, I think would be really dangerous. So back up just a minute, Chris. I think you just did this, but can you again kind of give a, a cursory explanation of Hyperionism? Yeah, Hyperionism is this guy's invention, and it's based on the Greek preposition huper, which makes its way into English with the prefix hyper, um, like hyper-preterist or hyper-Calvinist or whatever. Um, and the Greek preposition just means above or beyond, uh, over. Of course, it also means exceedingly or um, excessively. Um, and anyway... The, the the whole idea of this Hyperionism cult is that by following by, by accepting the things that uh, Morg is teaching in his content and by putting them into practice in real life, you can become sort of superhuman or or an or a further evolved human. You can become above and beyond human. Um, and and it's just, it's really bizarre. It, it, it's it's a cult of rationalism. Um, so they they very much think that empiricism, things like scientific observations. Uh, um, uh, evidence, you know, cumulative cases, uh, things like these are are meaningless when it comes to understanding truth and reality. It's all about applying rational reasoning, and they think that by applying deductive logic and and, and extreme you know, rigid reason to thinking about the universe, we can discover things like some of the things that we'll be hearing in this video, which as we'll talk about are pretty absurd. What would you, so would you say that he is a materialist? Um, you know, as I was listening to this, it, it sounds like he, he wants to hit on some kind of a look. It does all boil down to matter in the sense that even mathematics, and I know we're jumping ahead here, kind of has a material foundation 
But at the same time, he's he's talking about you as though you can, like you said, become some sort of a new take on an Ubermensch or something like that. <laughs> no, it's actually more like the opposite of materialism. It's it's idealism. It's like idealism, um, he thinks. Yeah, so he thinks that matter is really just an expression or, or, or even a dream, as we'll learn throughout the course of this video, uh, generated by, um, by immaterial mind. But not mind as any ordinary person would understand the word mind, and that's something that we'll talk about. So he thinks that everything is mind, and at the core of everything is mathematics. Um, I, I don't want to say much more without giving no, the cat out, letting I, the cat I, out of the bag. So. Yeah, and as we go, I hope that one thing we'll get to do is maybe um, differentiate a bit between you know, Christian idealism on the one hand and yes. whatever he's hawking. So, all right, let's, uh, let's go on to the next clip and we'll talk a little bit about rational proofs. The first thing we need to know is that a rational proof is not the same thing as convincing someone or providing empirical evidence. A rational proof is more powerful than either of these. Someone can be convinced of something that isn't true at all, and empirical evidence never results in certain truth, but only in probability. A deductive, rational proof, when its premises are true, and it's used correctly, of course, results in 100% certainty. So let's look at a few examples to see the difference. Now, induction based on empirical evidence goes like this. Let's say that I observe a hundred white swans. Then, because of my repeated observations, I conclude that all swans are white. Well, is my conclusion 100% certain? No, it only has a probability of being true. At any time, a black swan may come along and obliterate my conclusion, even though it had empirical evidence supporting it. All right, Chris. Um, so talking a little bit about induction, uh, you know, we, we based on what the evidence we have, we, it seems sensible to conclude X, understanding that X can be overturned with additional information. What are your opening thoughts on this? Well, so this is actually the one part of the video that I think is in and of itself helpful. The rest of it's only helpful insofar as we can debunk it and show how absurd it is. But this part of the video is really useful in that he does a good job of explaining the difference between induction and deduction. Um, induction is, one way of describing induction is its appeal to the best, best explanation. So if you've got a, um, a set of data that requires explanation, induction is the process of appealing to the explanation that best accounts for all of that data um, that as he as he's absolutely he's absolutely right when he says that that does not lead you to certainty whereas a deductive proof um, and he gives examples of these like the famous uh, all humans are mortal Socrates is a human ergo Socrates is mortal that's a deductive proof and it does arrive at 100% certainty provided that the premises are uh, accurate and true um, so, and the way that he unpacks the difference between those two, two, two things is extremely helpful, and I would encourage people to watch that part of it. The, the thing that, the reason why I wanted to respond to this clip, though, is because you can see, and, and this is only a hint of it, how much um, Morg 
cares about, or at least pretends to care about, 100% certainty, which proves to be somewhat ironic given some of the, um, the the mistakes that he makes later in this video. So I just wanted to people, I wanted people to have in mind as we proceed how how important to him deductive 100% certainty is, so they can see how ironic that is when we look at some of the other mistakes that he makes. Ma makes. Okay, really, really helpful. Yeah, and uses the classic black swan example. Um, all right, let's. Uh, so you want to go on to the next clip? I think sure. we can move yep. on now. Yeah, get into the meat of it. And we're going to get into the meat of it by taking a look at the omnis of the Christian God. And um, I, we'll jump right in here. Well, here we're specifically talking about the God of the Bible. Now, this God isn't just some abstract cosmic force. He has a personality and very specific attributes as laid out in the Bible. According to Orthodox Christianity, this God is all-powerful, all-knowing and all-loving. To prove that this God doesn't exist, all we have to do is prove that he is not one or more of these attributes. And this is easily done. It's easily done, Chris. It's not hard at all. Um, yeah, so so we're talking about uh, the... So I, he's right. We believe in an omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent God. Um, but... What, how we understand that, how we unpack that often brings along a lot of uh, confusion because a lot of times people think that when we're talking about God's ability to say, um, do anything or, or, it's in, or God, God is all powerful, that that means that he can literally do anything, including things that aren't things. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that or do you want me to keep rambling on? No, I, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, he is right that it's easy to prove that a God does not exist who has these attributes if what one means by these attributes is that God can literally do anything, if that's what you mean by omnipotent, or that God knows literally everything that 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 even could not possibly be known logically, right? Uh, and so if you define omniscience that way, yeah, God is not omniscient. Uh, or or uh, omnibenevolent, if you mean by that that um, that God only does loving things and that God is only love, if, if this is how you define om uh, omnibenevolence or, or all loving, if you define them in these ways, it is easy to disprove that, uh, that a God exists who has these qualities. But of course, as you implied, that's not what Christians have meant. By, by omnipotent, um, I like the way that um, Tim Barnett of Stand to Reason described it in one of his recent Red Pen videos, uh, where he said that by omnipotence, what we mean is that God can do anything that raw power can do. Um, by omniscience, we mean that God knows everything that can possibly be known. And by omnibenevolent, we mean that everything that God does is loving, but it doesn't mean that that's all he is. And so I want to make sure people understand as we look at his critique that his his critiques are going to be based on on a number of problems. But one of the uh, one of the mistakes he makes is is assuming this um, these definitions of these omnis that not even we Christians mean by them. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, what we're doing here is we're looking at what are called incoherence arguments that atheists will bring. And so the omnipotence paradox, which I know he's going to get to more later. And so we'll, we'll get to that when we get there. But, um, but it, the, the attempt here, so I agree with him about one thing. When, many times you'll hear the claim that the Christian God is not falsifiable 
or that God, the God of the philosophers, or just say a God that has these omnis is not falsifiable. Well, it's not exactly true. It, it is falsifiable. In fact, there's an interesting debate between uh, David Wood and Michael Shermer, where at one point Michael Shermer says that you can't prove a negative. It's, it's impossible to show that something does not exist. And then later in the same debate, he brought a logical argument from evil, which is aimed at showing that God so defined does not exist. Um, but the way that you would show that the Christian God so defined does not exist is or one way is to look for something that is incoherent in his nature. So he's on the right track. If he could show that as we define God, it leads to um, contradictions or an incoherence, then you would have shown that either that God does not exist or that God as described does not exist. And so when it comes to one thing that's not going to be covered in this video that I think is helpful and you touched on it but didn't go into detail. So uh, take, for example, God's omniscience. Um, some of the listeners might wonder, well, what, what, what does Chris even mean? God, there's something God doesn't know or God knows everything that can be known. Well, believe it or not, the way this is sometimes framed up in an omniscience paradox is to say, look, I know about myself that I am Braxton Hunter. God can never know about himself, I am Braxton Hunter. Therefore, Braxton Hunter knows something that God doesn't know, namely that I am Braxton Hunter. But of course, that would be a falsehood. What we mean when we say that God is omniscient is that he knows uh, all true propositions. So the, the, there's a, he knows that I am Braxton Hunter, but it's foolish to ask the question, does he know about himself that he's Braxton Hunter? So th this is, as silly as this may sound, um, many of the uh, paradoxes that are supposed to exist that are brought by atheists in these incoherence arguments are brought uh, on, on grounds that they misunderstand, as you said, what we mean by the given omni-property. Now, of course, one of the ones that is most obvious to most people, uh, probably the most popular incoherence argument aimed at God, is an argument from evil, a logical argument from evil. And so that's the one people are familiar with because what's going on there is we're trying to say, look, if God has these omnis, uh, he's all powerful, he's all loving, and he's all knowing, then evil should not exist such as we observe it. So that's, that, that's why that falls into the category of an, of an incoherence argument. All right, uh, you ready to move on? See what comes next? Let's do it. All right. All we have to do is point out that God allows people to go to hell. According to Orthodox Christianity, hell is the worst fate imaginable. It's an eternity of torture. Chris, um, you know, I, I hate to spring this on you because I know that you probably haven't done much thinking on this subject, but um, uh, ha have you thought much about the nature of hell? I've given it a thought here to, you know, here and there. Um, and, and yeah, your, your view, our viewers will understand now why I'm the one here joining you to critique this guy, because as you know, um, I don't think that the Bible teaches, uh, in fact, I think it very clearly teaches that hell is not uh, a place where the wicked will be tormented forever. It's, it's hell is the, uh, the place of the place where, or the fact of the wicked being finally destroyed, um, never living again. Now I'm not saying necessarily that that is going to, um, be any less uh, prone, any less subject to Morg's critique. Uh, but at least as the way, in the way that he's characterizing it here, the way that he's playing out this argument here, um, what I think the Bible teaches is, is unscathed by his argument because I don't think it teaches uh, eternal torment. 
Yeah, uh, you know, while we're on this, Chris, um, I teach a class here at Trinity on the nature of hell, although I don't know if I'll be the one to continue teaching that now that we have you on board. Um, one of the things I appreciate about you is your ability to lay out the views fairly, um, even the ones that you don't hold. And that's, that's really uh, admirable. But um, th so I think to some people's minds, the idea that the Bible does not teach eternal conscious torment is shocking because they might say something like, um, um, don't you know that we're talking about the second death? And don't you know that the second death implies eternally consciously being alive and suffering? Um, can, can you throw out a couple of passages that, that you think um, are best understood that way or, or something uh, are best understood on your view, the conditionalist view for people that think, wait a minute, I thought the Bible very, very clearly taught eternal conscious torment. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you two categories of texts, and I won't go into any of them in any sort of significant detail here. But one category of texts are very famous verses that people don't often realize touch on the subject. So, for example, the most famous verse in all the scripture, John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not suffer alive and immortal forever. And wait, 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 sorry, sorry. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know, and in the immediately preceding verses, Jesus has compared himself to the statue of a serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness, uh, to which people who had been bitten by otherwise fatally venomous snakes could look, and upon looking at that statue, they would be, they would literally have their lives saved. So Jesus, faith in Jesus is a life and death matter, literally. Um, and then, and then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Just two verses later, because there weren't verse and chapter divisions in the original, he explains, he, he makes clear what he means by death. He says that when a spouse dies, the other spouse who's still living can remarry. So there, the wages of sin is literal death, not some sort of code word or code language, meaning immortality and everlasting life and torment. The other category of texts that I'll give, however, are the very texts that are typically lifted up as support for eternal torment. So for example, Matthew 25, 46, uh, those, some will go on, go to God's left. Uh, they will go into eternal uh, punishment and the other to the right, eternal life. It's the same duration of time, everlasting for both the life and the punishment. And I agree. But only one of those two groups of people get everlasting life. So the everlasting punishment that is suffered by the others must be everlasting death, not everlasting life in immortality. Or take, for example, Mark 9, 48, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Jesus isn't coming up with that language on its own. He's citing Isaiah 66, 24, quoting it almost verbatim from the Septuagint. Um, in which it, it's explicitly dead bodies or corpses that are being consumed by fire and maggots. Now, obviously, this is just a, a cursory look at these texts, but the point is, is that, um, as I've often said, with, virtual, with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for the annihilation of the finally impenitent. And these two and other ones we could look at are no exception. So that's just an introduction. And if people want to learn more, they can, of yeah. course, come and watch Rethinking Hell. Yeah. And of course, there are people I'm sure in the chat that are thinking, hey, I need to I need to throw out some some stuff in defense <laughs> of eternal conscious torment. Um, also, you have people in the chat who are saying, amen, Chris, preach it. Um, but but again, uh, what we can say for sure is, look, um, whatever you think the fate of the unbeliever is, you don't want any part of that. And so that's an that's important, true, too. That's an important thing to, to say. But your answer to this is quite different than what someone who affirms eternal conscious torment, because you can't grant his primacy there is premise there. That's right. Um, but yeah. I do think it's worth, um, uh, b b you know me, I care a lot about 
Christian unity on the essentials of the faith while uh, charitably tolerating diversity on the non-essentials. And I think this is one of those non-essentials. And so I think it might behoove us uh, to talk, to, to try and address his syllogism um, to the extent that that's what it is from the perspective of somebody who does believe in eternal torment and, and, and discuss whether or not his syllogism even challenges that view. Yeah, we'll do that. And um, look here, uh, Har- Hervey Schmervy says, Chris is my favorite YouTuber. I, I feel bad for for Hervey if I'm his or her favorite, uh, because I think there are much better YouTubers out there, including you. Ah, <laughs> so nonsense. All right, uh, let's uh, okay. So let's let's take a deeper look at this thing about hell, and let's see if we grant eternal conscious torment whether his objections stand up. So since God allows people to go to hell, this means either he is not all loving because no being of infinite love would allow souls to be tortured for all eternity. Or he is powerless to stop this from happening, in which case he is not all powerful, or he doesn't know that they're going to hell, in which case he's not all knowing. Okay, um, so if we grant this, Chris, if we say, look, eternal conscious torment, if we just say for the, for the sake of this discussion, it's definitely true, Chris is gonna assume that for the purpose of argument. And uh, d- does it mean that God is not all loving? Well, um, you know, some, some initial thoughts come. Um, one of the defenses here. So you, you hit on this when we were, you were talking about the incoherence that is supposed to exist in the property of uh, or the uh, omnibenevolence. Now, the thing about it is God is ultimately good. We would agree that God is maximally good. Now, you might answer this differently than me, Chris. And so I'm, I'm sure there may be some differences here. Um, yeah, I'll turn up the morgue video in a second, guys. Sorry about that. It's a little quiet, I see. But uh, if God is ultimately good, and listeners to this show have heard me say this quite a bit, then in order to be maximally good, God must be maximally just, he mu- or he must be just. He has to. There are two things that are important here, three things perhaps, that God is loving, God is just, and if he fails to be one of those things, he's not good. And so um, let's, you know, for example, I always say, well, what if we what if we captured Jeffrey Epstein after he had done all the horrible things on the evil Bond Island that he had? And um, we, we saw all the horrible thing, heard all the stories about the people that were hurt. And then we said, you know what, though, we, we want to show him love. We want to be a country that loves on him. So let's give him a hug and just let him go. Now, if we did that, it might feel good to Jeffrey Epstein. But to everyone watching, especially the families of those hurt and those that were hurt, they would say, this is not good. And why isn't it good? We're showing love. Well, it's that's questionable, but it's not good because it's not just. And so um, in that way, I think we plug in the justice of God and the love of God. We get an interesting thing, whether you take uh, an eternal conscious torment view or an annihilationist conditionalist immortality view. I think this works on both, although your atonement, your understanding of the atonement, Chris, might differ a little bit here. Um, I don't know. But so if so, here's a thought experiment that someone came up with, and I'm not sure who. But let's say that a cat is whining outside my door uh, and I'm trying to watch um, uh, the uh, the uh, yeah, the Indiana Jones trilogy, let's say. And uh, and I say trilogy intentionally. I noticed that. Actually, actually, that's not true. I am a defender of the crystal skull. I'm one of the few. But if you ask a kid, a little kid, what they like better, they'll often say the crystal skull is their favorite. But um, but anyway, um, so if I hear a cat whining outside my window and it's driving me crazy, let's imagine that I go out there and I strangle that cat to death. Now, I would never do this, of course, even though I'm a dog person. But if I did that. 
let's. I, I don't know what the penalty is. There, there. I, I don't know what what would happen to me because of that. Maybe I have to spend a night in jail. Maybe I have to pay a fine. I don't know because I don't typically. I, I don't ever strangle cats. Um. So so that would be that. But let's say that my neighbor keeps buying more cats and keeps buying more cats, and eventually I go and strangle my neighbor. Now there is a different thing going on. Now I may go to prison for the rest of my life. I may face the death penalty because there's a perception. Our intuition here, our internal intuition tells us that um, that man's life is equal in value to my life, whereas the cat's life is not equal in value to my life. So if you can see the difference there, then you can see the stair step from a cat's life to a man's life to the question of what happens if you sin against an everlasting God. Now, there's some interesting uh, philosophical stuff we've got to do here that we don't have time to do in this episode because there are nuances that need to be made to make this really work. But just putting it simply, um, an everlasting uh, uh, result is what is what happens. Whether you take the um, conditional immortality view that you are dead everlastingly, or you take the eternal conscious torment view that, you, that, that, this is, that you're going to be eternally conscious uh, everlastingly, in either case, if you followed the intuition between the cat's life, the man's life, which is equal to mine, and now God, now we see that there's an everlasting penalty. So God is a God of justice. He has to dole out justice. On the other hand, he doles out love because he's also a God of love. Well, how is this God going to dole out justice and love? Well, you get the everlasting person to die on the cross for the sin of the world. That's how I make sense of that. Um, and I think it makes sense of whether it'll ever make sense emotionally. Um, it, it's just like with the problem of evil. Uh, why does God allow bad things to happen? It may never make sense emotionally that that child died, for example, or that cancer patient is suffering the way they are. It may never emotionally satisfy, but I think there is a logical explanation. Um, any thoughts on that, Chris? No, I think you're you're absolutely right. And I'll add that it's not just in the act of the atonement that a believer in eternal torment could see um, the love of God expressed even in at the same time as the justice of God. Um, you see, most Christians today, I, I think most, um, no longer have the sort of literal burning fire and hell view that the Christians of the past did. Um, and we can, of course, discuss whether or not this shift is, is legitimate if, if it's justified by the biblical data. But nowadays, uh, people tend to think of hell as seclusion from God, um, sort of being uh, quarantined in some dark, gloomy corner, corner of the cosmos away from God and from his people. Um, and in, in fact, some would say that it's the very love of God, the very outpouring of God's love that is experienced as torment by the wicked in hell because they are hostile to God. It's sort of like just the other day, my, my wife and I were having a conversation with our teenage son and um, he said something and my wife went to go hug him because he was on the verge of tears and he pushed her away. The, the feeling of her love and her, his, her embrace at that time was not did not feel good to him. It was torturous. And in the same way, um, people in hell could so hate God and be so rebellious toward him that his expressions of an outpouring of love may be experienced as torment. In fact, there, there, furthermore, there, there are um, views of hell amongst people who believe in eternal torment now where letting people be immortal and live forever is actually an expression of God's mercy. He could annihilate them as I think that he will, but instead he chooses to give them everlasting life um, because that's an act of mercy and because a lot of people would rather go on living forever in some form of sadness or or 
even just sort of neutrality. I, I debated a, a believer in eternal torment once named J.P. Holding, who who said that hell is like drinking warm, flat beer forever. It's just blah, <laughs> you know? It's um, kind of like the that, great divorce, hell and the great divorce. That's exactly my point. Mm -hmm. if, if you conceive of eternal torment like that, it becomes much more difficult to think that, uh, or let me put it this way, um, Morg's argument, a lot of the teeth are taken away if your conception of eternal torment is something like that. So there's just a whole host of reasons why even for somebody who believes in eternal torment, um, Morg's argument just does not hold up under scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I just want to say real quick, first of all, business guy says, why did God allow the crystal skull to be made? Well, I on... like the crystal skull. <laughs> I'm glad to hear and, it. And you know what? Here, I want to defend it. I want to defend it for a moment. Okay. I, I so often hear people make fun of it and joke and, 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 and lampoon it because it's got interdimensional beings and stuff like that, as if that's somehow wackier than uh, uh, ghosts flying out of the Ark of the Covenant and melting people's faces off or cups of, of water that grant immortality that are guarded by hundreds of year old knights in, a, you know, in the third. The whole series is full of this kind of science fiction-y fantasy type stuff. And to think that Crystal Skull is somehow how a departure from that um, drives me insane. I don't know why people give it such a hard time. I agree with you. And um, I will say that I have a fan theory. You know, when Elsa, the love interest in uh, Last Crusade, is falling into the cracks in the in, in there where the uh, near the seal of the of the night where the grail is, she's reaching for the cup of Christ. And she says, I can almost get it. And what is she told by Indy? Let it go. And so she dies, oh. and her afterlife experience is as Elsa in Frozen, where she sings all the time about let it go. Anyway, uh, let's move on from this. Uh, nice. Fun times we're having. All right. Um, uh, so uh, we got 100 viewers right now. I really appreciate every one of you showing up. Thank you so much for Thank coming out for this. We're going to go on to the next clip. And the next clip is going to take us into maybe a little bit more about hell, but also into free will, a place where Chris and I might have a nuanced difference as he's a Calvinist and I'm not. And we've both def uh, debated people of the opposite side. Uh, back to the crystal skull. Uh, the reason that the crystal skull was made on Chris's view is that God decreed it. The reason that the crystal skull <laughs> exists on my view is because of the free will choices of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Here we go with believing and free will. Some fundamentalist believers will say that God allows people to go to hell because that's their punishment for not believing in him. They say God wants people to have free will and that's simply their punishment for choosing not to believe. Okay, Chris, open us up. Well, I'll let you cover the free will theodicy because that's not the theodicy that I think is coherent and consistent with the biblical data. But what I do want to say is his characterization of why Christians think people go to hell, um, that might be true of some Christians, but it's not true of Christian thinkers throughout the centuries, and it's not true of what the Bible says. People don't go to hell for refusing to believe in Jesus. People go to hell for their sins because they're guilty, and, and they know that they are guilty of one of... Uh, if not many, many, many numerous sins. So here's an analogy. Um, if you have, say, 10 people on death row and they're all about to be killed and a governor calls in and uh, what's it called when the governor uh, lets somebody go instead of being killed? There's a word for it. Well, anyway, pardon. Yeah. So the governor pardons one of them and that person goes free and the other nine are killed. Nobody says or, or nobody can legitimately say the reason those nine were killed 
is because they, they weren't pardoned. No, the reason that they were killed is because they were guilty of capital offenses. It just so happens that one of them was pardoned by the governor, um, and, and, and that's somewhat of an apt analogy for what we're talking about, because everybody goes to hell who goes to hell because they've sinned. The only reason some people don't go to hell is because they've been freed, they've been declared innocent by virtue of their faith in Christ. Um, and, and that's a significant difference between that and what Morg just characterized the faith as teaching. I think you're right. Now, I was going to wait until after the next clip to talk about the free will theodicy because he, uh, I think you realized that even though you don't affirm the sort of free will that I affirm, you recognize that he got it wrong. But let's let I'll go ahead and, and just sketch this out pretty simply. So there are various theodicies. Theodicies are explanations that people might give for why they think God um, is just in allowing um, suffering, pain, evil, all the bad stuff that happens. Um, uh, sometimes, though we won't go into this, those same theodicies are given as defenses where we say, I don't know that this is the case, but so long as this is a, a, a live option here, then something like what Morg is saying, that there is no good explanation, fails. But so some of those might be something like the character-building theodicy. The character-building theodicy says, look, God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it because experiencing those things um, builds our moral character and integrity. And there is biblical data that seems to suggest that. Um, I always forget if it's Romans chapter 4 or 5 where it's talking about going through some of those things can, can, uh, can build us into better people and that sort of thing. But... Um, but character building, a character building theodicy, I think, is in part correct. It's I think you do find it in the pages of Scripture. But alone, I don't think it's the whole story. Um, then you have theodicies that say something like, well, we have to experience a world like this um, in order to appreciate what it's going to be in, like in heaven or to be prepared in some sense for what things are going to be like in heaven. Then you have a reformed theodicy, which might be what uh, some Calvinists hold, which would say something like, uh, and John Piper says this as bluntly as I've ever heard anyone say it, but basically that, um, look, uh, yeah, God is, and I'm going to try to seal man it here because I am talking to a Calvinist and one of my favorite Calvinists, uh, but, but yeah, God, God is... Um, determining through secondary causes everything that happens, but um, that's because there is a beautiful work of art, there's a beautiful story of redemption, there's a purpose for everything that he does, uh, whether, and often, even though it may seem horrific to us, it, it, it has some purpose in God's divine plan, and that might be simply glorifying God in some cases. Do you want to say anything about that one, Chris? If, if we did an episode on theodicy, I'd say a lot more, but I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, uh, but, uh, and I do think there's truth in it. I do think that God has a purpose in the things that happen. Um, but I think the engine behind all of that is the one we're talking about here, which is uh, the free will theodicy. And so um, if you look at scripture that says something like that what God wants is for a man to uh, love the Lord as God and love his neighbor as himself, those who defend my view, and Chris would not say this, I don't think, at least not to the extreme that I would say it, but in order to have that sort of love, you have to have an element of what we call libertarian freedom. And libertarian free will, Calvinists affirm a sort of free will called compatibilism, but libertarians affirm a form of free will that says, nothing external to the agent determined what the agent would do. So sometimes that means whatever you ended up doing, you could have done something else instead. Um, but at the very least, what it means, what is both sufficient and necessary, is that nothing external to you determined your actions. And so uh, we would say, okay, if God wants to create a world like that because he ultimately wants the love, and the love requires on this view libertarian freedom in some measure, well, then that means that uh, God has to create a world with libertarianly free agents, and he can't force someone to freely do the right thing on a 
libertarian understanding of free will. And so uh, this even explains the tree in the garden. However, you understand that story is that he puts the tree there because there has to be something that the man can sacrifice. The man and the woman can say, in order to be obedient, in order to show my love for God, I'm going to forego this thing I could have in obedience and love to him. So it's, it needs to be there to have that something to sacrifice, to have the free will in place. And so um, even if you're God, you're talking about what God can do. If God doesn't have to give man free will, and Chris doesn't think that he did give him the kind of free will that I'm talking about. But on this view, if he does choose to do that, then even if you're God, you don't have to do that. But if you're going to do that, you have to live with the reality that man is going to use that for both good and for evil. And so as a result, you have the horrific things that happen in the world. But as we connect this back to the, the discussion we had about the cat and the man and God and all of that whole thing, God expresses justice and love in a way that works together such that we have a good God, but we also have people that are going to hell, whatever you understand hell to be. So um, you did a real good job being patient with someone spouting things you don't agree with, Chris. <laughs> well, I mean, so uh, this is actually a great opportunity to say something that I'm really passionate about, which, as I said, is is, is unity amongst people who disagree on secondary issues in the faith. You know, I, I, there's a place for debate, as you know. I love to debate, and I love um, to have that debate rigorously, sometimes animatedly, right? Sometimes our voices get raised and stuff like that. But what frustrates me and what grieves me and what I think frustrates and grieves God is when um, people who, hold, who have these disagreements on the secondary issues of the faith treat them as cause for division and for not working together. Imagine if we Calvinists and non-Calvinists, we annihilationists and non, you know, eternal torment believers uh, and universalists for that matter, um, open theists, uh, uh, charismatics, cessationists, and on and on it goes. Imagine if we could all have these debates internally, rigorously, but love each other and work together to take the gospel to a world that, as Morg is clearly an indication of, so desperately needs um, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what. That's why I love doing. That's why I'm happy to sit and patiently listen to what is nonsense. I'm just kidding, because because it allows us to demonstrate that we can we can we can be loving to one another and we can work together to to take the gospel to those who so desperately need it. And recognizing that wrongness on certain things does not equal lostness. And we don't have exactly. to consign each other to the flames, um, whether that's momentary or forever. All right, um, <laughs> that's right. let's let's keep uh, let's keep going with this. And now we get to oh, here's the uh, later statements on free will. Now, how insane is this? This is beyond crazy for so many reasons. First of all, what kind of a maniac of a god gives someone free will, but then allows them to be tortured for eternity? if they don't choose what God wants them to choose. How is that free will? I mean, really think about it. Would you do that? If you're a sane person, of course you wouldn't. So why would a being of supposed infinite love do it? Hey, Chris, before we comment on that, um, I, I know we're trying to not get too bogged down in the discussion of conditionalism, but I mm. do have a question here that I kind of would like to hear your response to. Kim McCracken sure. says, what does Chris mean by go to hell if he's an annihilationist? Yeah, so um, I think that uh, all, all Orthodox Christians who can legitimately be called Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. As we talked about earlier, I'm going to be having a debate on this very topic in a couple of weeks. Um, but what that means is that when, whatever the nature of the punishment that is awaiting the finally wicked is going to be, it's going to be somewhere. Because resurrected bodies are, by definition, 
physically they, they extend in three-dimensional space so there's a where there's a when and as such i'm comfortable calling whatever that place is where the wicked are finally destroyed hell after all the translation hell at least in good translations translates a greek word gehenna um, which in english is sometimes transliterated gehenna which is a uh, new testament greek shortening and transliteration of the old testament hebrew phrase the valley of the son of hinnom um, this was an actual valley and it was a still place is. where uh, it's a beautiful it city park today Oh, okay, well, I'll look forward to going to hell one day. Yeah. But um, but in the time of the Old Testament being written, it was a place where idol worshippers, uh, Baal worshippers and Molech worshippers, sacrificed their children in fire. And in places like Jeremiah 7, beginning in around verse 30, God says, one day this isn't any longer going to be called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. Uh, the, the, the dead bodies of God's slain enemies, Jeremiah 7 says, will be left unexposed to be consumed. Um, consumed by scavenging beasts and birds. So this so this place in the Old Testament becomes an eschatological picture of future punishment and the nature of that punishment is cashed out in terms of death and destruction, not immortality and everlasting life and pain as the tradition teaches. So I'm comfortable saying go to hell because hell Gehenna as uh, Jesus calls it will be a place People will be raised into three-dimensional, you know, physically extended uh, bodies, um, and wherever they are, they will be destroyed, and I'm comfortable calling that hell. Yeah, and it's it's fair to mention, I think, that um, I saw someone put a poll up on the Rethinking Hell Facebook group not too long ago that um, some uh, people who hold your general perspective would also say, oh, there's a place, and you might suffer, let's say, for lack of better terminology, commensurate to your crimes or something, or you might suffer literal fire, or you might not suffer a little fire, but you, you'll suffer for a while. Some people just say, you just die. You'll, you'll just be destroyed there. I, am I misunderstanding that? No, there's, there's a, you're not misunderstanding it. There's a variety of views. Um, the, the, the thing that unites all of those views, however, is that the punishment isn't pain. It's not the pain that um, is experienced as part of the process of dying. The punishment is the consequent lifelessness. So an analogy would be the death, uh, the death penalty. There's a lot of ways we inflict the death penalty, right? There's the, there's the noose, there's the electric chair, the gas chamber, lethal injection, stoning, the cross, right? There's a whole bunch of different ways in which people are capitally executed, capitally punished. Um, and those different means of inflicting capital punishment inflict a de varying degree and duration of pain. Somebody who suffers the death by lethal injection is going to suffer less pain. Uh, how much is an open question, incidentally, but less pain than somebody who dies on the electric chair. And that person will suffer a lot less pain than somebody who dies on a cross. Um, but the, what, sh what all of these death penalties inflict, what, what they share in common is that the punish punishment they inflict is death, not the process of dying, but not having life anymore. And so what unites all of us as annihilationists, however long we think people will suffer as part of the process of dying, is that it's not that pain that's the punishment, it's the resulting lifelessness. Yeah, okay, so now, thank you for that. And um, uh, as we get back to the comments that he just made now on free will and how it doesn't really seem like free will if God has basically got a gun to your head threatening you to send you to hell. Um, but I think uh, this is a misunderstanding of the sort of free will that we just described, um, that, that, that I hold, the libertarian free will. Um, because what he's saying is, he's like, look, so on the one hand, you have basically what he's describing as coercion. Right. God is coercing you. He's saying, look, if you don't do this, I'm going to send you to hell. So you're really not free. 
When in reality, on a libertarian view where nothing external to you determines your actions, that would certainly and does certainly provide strong influence to accept the position that you should you should become a Christian. And in fact, I don't care how many apologists out there think that this is not fashionable for me to say. I think that not wanting to go to hell, whatever you understand hell to be, is um, is a valid um, a valid motivation. I think um, it shouldn't be the only motivation, especially not when you get through this whole thing. But uh, when you become a Christian, you start thinking about all the benefits you get that Ephesians one lays out. But still, it, it is a motivation there, um, and a motivation that, that that Jesus talked about on four occasions at least, if you collapse all the all the parallels. Uh, but um, but I, but it's not, but you're not, you're still free, even though there's an influence right. there, you're still free. You could still say, no, 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 I'm going to go against what God wants. I'm still going to choose whatever hell it is. I'm going to choose that over, uh, this relationship with God. And in fact, there are quite a few skeptics out there who, um, who, who describe God as the Bible describes him. And they say, if that God does exist, I want no part of it. He'll not get any of my worship. And that sounds really bold and courageous and all those sort of things. But the reality is um, that it demonstrates there are people who would choose that. So I think those are important comments to make. Anything else you want to say on what he said there? Yeah, the, the other thing I wanted to point out, and he does this a couple of times. Uh, we've got another clip, in fact, lined up where he does this. His his The basis of his argument, if, if I'm not mistaken, boiled down to this. Would you do that? <laughs> right. That's that's the way he said it. As if what I would or would not do is a reliable indication of what I should expect this all knowing all. I mean, just just think about it. What I would or would not do is based entirely on what I know and don't know. Right. Or, well, what I do know and not on what I don't know, because I don't know it. Um, somebody, a, a God who is who knows everything that can be known. Why would I expect that God to do or not do what I would or would not do? Also, what I would or would not do is based on my limited power. Why would a God of omnipotence um, do or not do what I would or would not do when he doesn't suffer the same constraints? And on and on it goes. So it just baffles me that anybody would hear would you do that and think that that's oh yeah i wouldn't therefore god can't be couldn't do this if he's all loving it just doesn't make any sense to me right i often say uh, you know, there's an atheist out there pine creek who often says well <laughs> if you if you were in charge of the flood and the flood's going to come up and if god said hey i'm going to drown everybody or whatever would would you have done that way or would you have said no god i'd rather you poof them out of existence what would you do here's the answer i probably would say let's poof them out of existence but guess what i'm not god i'm some guy living in southwest indiana and it's kind of like uh, this is an old example but it's a it's a good one my children don't always well you gave one like this a while ago my children don't always understand why i'm doing what i'm doing and they wouldn't do it that way if they had a choice about it but that's because they're children and I'm an adult. And the gap in our um, awareness, knowledge, cognitive ability, whatever, uh, pales in comparison to the difference between ours and God's. And I know that some atheists are going to hear that and say, oh, well, then you're just giving the whole uh, God works in mysterious ways sort of thing. No, uh, we're saying that if we could see all the pieces, I think it would make sense the way God does things. We don't always see all the pieces. And so these are the limits of our knowledge. But it does shock me, this whole thing of, um, well, it's, it's expected now, so it doesn't shock me. But when he says, uh, would you do it that way? Uh, off, and we're going to see that again. Oftentimes, skeptics will say, if God exists, he wouldn't do that. 
So they claim to know or imply that they claim to know the mind of the God they don't believe in better than those of us who do believe. It. They know that God so well that they don't believe exists. It's just odd to me. All right. Um, anything else before we move on? No, let's, let's do it. And in fact, it's Noah right now. In the story of Noah, God drowns the entire world population except for Noah and his family because he's unhappy with their choices. So what kind of all-loving God that apparently wants everyone to have free will drowns every living thing on earth because he doesn't like their choices? Chris is, whoops, that's, that's just me. There you are. Um, is that why God drowned everyone on earth is because he just didn't like their choices? I think that that is an extremely um, facile characterization of what the Bible, anyway, indicates was God's motive for doing so. Uh, if you go to Genesis 6, verse 5, uh, the English Standard Version, which is, of course, the inspired version, because it's the one we Calvinists like, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So to say that that is just God not being happy with their choices is, is as I said, very facile, um, and, and, and it misrepresents what's going on. What's going on is that humankind at this time, save Noah and his family, is absolutely corrupted, absolutely evil. Everything they think or want or do is evil. Um, and, you know, uh, we could still certainly question whether killing all but Noah and his family is the right thing to do. But at the very least, I think it's legitimate to question whether unhappy with their choices is the right way to characterize what God, what motivates God in this case. Yeah, and I think we should appreciate that though we all have the, have depravity, the reality is this was a specific case. Now, I know as systematic theologians, we want to run through the text and we've got our man bag and we want to say, what is man like anthropologically? And so, oh, here, we'll go to Genesis 6 and th this is what man's like, man's like this. Well, this is talking about a specific group of people at a specific time. And while we all need salvation and while we all, you know, everyone will sin, the reality is that's a pretty strong statement. The all the thoughts of their heart were con evil continually. Um, and, and I think you're right that it's a very truncated way of saying it. Now, we have the unapologetic apologists got me into some trouble on Friday. Um, and uh, they say, uh, Selman says, but who designed the designer? Boom. Roasted. Let's pack it up. I think he's just... Uh yeah but you know we're actually going to get to something that is on the level of that in in just a yeah. few moments when we talk about the omnipotence paradox but i'm actually surprised that it was the unapologetic apologist that brought that instead of stelman smith the atheist or stelman St not stelman smith uh maxwell yates all right uh you ready to move on to the next thing Let's or do did we say what we wanted to say there i think we said what we wanted to say okay uh here's more on you wouldn't do it that way does that sound like an all-loving God? No, of course not. Wake up. I mean, you wouldn't do that. So how could an all-loving God do that? When I hear that, Chris, it almost sounds to me like he's, like this is an SNL skit and where he's making fun <laughs> of an atheist. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's kind of how it strikes me because there it is again. What Here's, okay, that obviously isn't true because you wouldn't do it that way. I mean, come on, man. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and besides what I don't know that I wouldn't do it the way that God did it if I had the power to take, uh, you know, to, to stop the kind of wickedness that the Bible describes was uh, 
occupying every moment of these people's thoughts and actions. I don't know that I wouldn't do things uh, the same way that he did. I just don't know. Um, but either way, to, it's as you, it's exactly as you say. It's like an SNL caricature of of an atheist. And I, and I know we've got some atheists that at least earlier in the chat were watching, like Shannon Q. Um, I don't think that she would make anything like such a, a facile argument. Um, and so I don't want people to think that this is necessarily characteristic of all atheists. Um, but uh, when I hear it, I, I, I chuckle a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are Christians that atheists will make response videos to that we think what they're saying, uh, aside from the fundamentals of the faith, are absurd, right? Some of the things they say. And so there are obviously people like, the, I mean, Scholar Fiction, uh, Shannon Q, they, they've all been like, who is this guy? What the heck? You know, so we, <laughs> we want to say that to be, to be fair. Um, yep. All right, let, let's move on to, uh, is God like Satan? In fact, this God shares more in common with the definition of Satan than a loving God. Chris, take it away. Yeah, so um, what he's assuming here is that a loving God's actions, um, or, or that a God's actions, if those actions are comparable to the actions of Satan, must be Satan. I mean, that's the essence of uh, this uh, of Morg's argument here. But what that fails to consider is the uh, is the motivations and the emotions that accompany those actions. Um, so, for example, in in the book of Ezekiel, I think it is, um, God appeals to Israel and tells them that the just penalty for their sins is death. But he appeals to them and says, please repent because I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. By contrast, Satan loves death. He loves people to die and to suffer um, and to be punished. And so um, right off the bat, you've got an extremely significant difference between the two of them. And that's not even to mention the motives, right? Satan doesn't want to inflict death uh, in order to wreak justice, right? Um, but God in a sense, desires the death penalty in the sense that it is what is um, consistent with justice. Uh, so there's another significant difference, and on and on they could go. I think it's a re I think it's a fallacy to assume that uh, two people's actions, if they're the same, they must in fact be the same person, or at least be comparable to one another, because it could be that the uh, circumstances of their actions, the motives, the emotions, and so forth are very different. Yeah, and I, I thought there was a, a funny uh, comment here made. Um on the last point we were talking about, the nerdy theist right now <laughs> says, yeah. if I were an atheist, I wouldn't run a YouTube channel like he does. Therefore, his YouTube channel shouldn't be considered an atheist YouTube channel. That's yeah. right. All right. Got the reductios going today. Okay, let's, uh, let's get on with it with, um, oh, this is the fun part, the omnipotence paradox. Omnipotence. That is being all-powerful. So according to fundamentalist Christianity, nothing is impossible for God, nothing at all. So let's discover the omnipotence paradox. If God is all powerful, can he create a stone that is so heavy that he can't lift it? Well, if he can create it, then that means he's not all powerful because he can't lift the stone. But if he can't create it, then he is also not all-powerful. Remember, fundamentalist Christianity says that nothing is impossible for God. Well, this is clearly impossible. Yeah, so um, one of the other examples comes to us from the great philosopher Homer Simpson, who said, um, can God create a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? Um, <laughs> but, he, you know, here's the thing about this is, 
remember what we said about these omnis in the beginning. We gave the actual um, understandings of of these omnis that ha- that, that go back centuries, and that is um, with omnipotence, God is able to. Do, uh, you said something like whatever brute force can do, or something like that that you borrowed from Tim Barnett. Um, but you know, simply put, God can do things that don't involve a logical contradiction. And the reality is, things that are logically contradictory aren't things. This is what C.S. Lewis hinted at. And so as a result, if those aren't things, then can God do everything? Yes, God can do everything. It's just that those things you're wanting him to be able to do aren't things to begin with. And uh, so when you're asking God to do things that aren't things, um, and then saying, therefore, God does not exist, you've gotten the nature of reality backwards. Mm. Yeah, I, I like the way that uh, another way that Tim Barnett puts it in his Red Pen Logic video is. Um, oh, and by the way, I want to make a quick shameless plug for the upcoming Rethinking Hell conference in early November in the Seattle area because it's going to be on the topic of hell and apologetics, and Tim Barnett will be one of the speakers there. Also, Paul Copan and also um, uh, Clay Jones, formerly of Biola University, they will be plenary speakers as well. Um, so hopefully, people will come check that out. Uh, RethinkingHellConference.com. But uh, but anyway, the, one of the things he points out is that this question is literally like saying, like asking, um, can God be both omnipotent and not omnipotent? But that's a logical, that'd be like saying, can he be both a square and a circle, right? It's it's, it's logically contradictory. And so the question itself is irrational and, and illogical. And you don't disprove the existence of something by posing an irrational question from the foundation. Yeah, I like that. Uh, man, uh, Tim Barnett's YouTube channel has blown up faster than any Christian apologist YouTube channel I think I've ever seen. And um, it irritates me. It's irritating. And such a great format he has. I mean, he does such a great job. I want to say again, I don't know which of those speak. I'm, I'm thinking it's Paul Copan, but I was scheduled to be at that <laughs> Rethinking Hell conference. It was Paul Copan. And, and, and we had a scheduling yeah. conflict that was completely my fault. And so... I was replaced with Paul Copan. Paul Copan was the second choice uh, <laughs> after Braxton Hunter. Now, I know that's not true, but uh, I mean, it is true. But it is. Uh, but... The, the reality is I was just on a show. Mike Lycona did um, uh, a thing in, in honor of uh, J.I. Packer. And, and uh, it, had, um, it had Dan Wallace and, um, and it had uh, uh, Paul Copan and Greg Minette. And it had me only because he was afraid he was going to have tech problems. But still, I got to be there and meet Paul Copain. I thought that was so cool. I did not tell him that story, but I did say that I was supposed to speak at that conference. Uh, by the way, uh, everyone should know I'm going to show this super chat. And I, I'm aware we have Catholics in the audience, but understand that Maxwell Yates is the most despicable atheist on this planet. And I can say that strongly because he's a beloved friend. Um, here is Maxwell Yates, $5 super chat. Say, I'm going to say nothing else about it. There we go. All right. Uh, let's, let's move on to, um, is that, is that, is that the unapologetic apologist, but in disguise? Surely not. It, it, you're, you're joking, right? That, it sure yeah, looks that, like it. Yes. That's what's <laughs> okay, happening. All right. Yes. So if you're offended by that, understand it's meant to be a mockery of the type of person who would put a post like that. Anyway. Um, all right. So the omnipotence paradox is absurd. And just as all these incoherence arguments make mistakes about the nature. Now, again, the best one that they have is an argument from evil. And when I say the best one, that doesn't mean we don't have answers to it. It's just to say that it has 
a power of persuasion that I don't think the others do, even after we've provided a response. It's got an emotional punch that it packs as well. Um, but anyway, uh, let's uh, let's go on to this next point. Yeah, well, I mean, before you play, whoops, whoops, whoops. hold on, Chris. Break these rational mathematics. Go right ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say this is this is where watching the video started to be fun for me because it gets really insane starting starting about here. Um, it, it transitions from already just nonsensical to outright ludicrousness. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, um, to continuing. All right. Because even God cannot break these rational mathematical laws. This means that God is restricted by them. So either these laws are more powerful than God, which means that God isn't God at all, but that these laws are God, or that God can't break these laws because these mathematical laws are what God is and God can't go against its own nature. Either case leads to the same conclusion, that mathematical law is God. All right, Chris, since you had a passionate uh, intro to that. Go ahead and, and share why, why you think that's absurd. Well, it's absurd because of what he goes on to say he means by mathematical law being God. Um, but what I want to say at the uh, from the outset here is that it's kind of funny. It's not all that far off from at least a real classical theology um, understanding of God as being simple, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, the reason why those of us who believe in divine simplicity think that God can't do the illogical, um, it's not because there's some law, logical law that is over God, to, you know, to which God is subject. It's because God's very nature is uh, logical. Uh, it is logic, um, but not just logic, also goodness and justice and mercy and, and all of the divine attributes of God. It's the, the doctrine of divine simplicity is that is not just that God exhibits these qualities, but that God foundationally is these qualities along with personality and, and his other traits. And so I just think it's funny because he gets really close to a classical theology answer to this question, uh, but as we'll see, he takes it way off the rails and, and probably merits that Greek prefix hyper, meaning exceedingly or, or excessively, as we'll see. Yeah, and, but um, I'd be interested for for somebody. I don't know. Do you, I don't know what you feel about divine simplicity? But I'd be interested in your take on if if God can't do the illogical. Um, I've just said why I think God can't do the illogical. It's because His very nature is to be logical, and you don't act contrary to your nature. Um, but I'd be curious to know how you would answer that question. So there's a little bit. So typically that's how I've defended it. Um, because of my view of free will, and because I believe that God Himself has libertarian freedom, which is some. Uh, in, interestingly, I'd like to know: Do you think God has libertarian freedom? I think that's a good question. Um, I think in time, no, because I think that God has foreordained everything that he would do in time from his position outside of created time. But outside of created time, uh, I think that he had the libertarian free freedom to be able to um, foreordain everything that would take place in created time. Yes. It's really interesting because though I think he has libertarian freedom in time as well, I didn't for a long time. For a long time, I thought that compatibilism was true for God, but that we mm. have libertarian freedom. And the reason was because I thought, and I don't even like phrasing it this way, but this is how it is sometimes phrased, that God was bound by his nature to do mm. only the best possible thing in any given circumstance, 
which would then give you some kind of compatibilism or determinism. And so, um, so I, I had come to the conclusion that God, uh, but then I, I, I continued to read and study and um, came to the understanding that even if we said that God does not have the principle of alternative possibilities, that is to say for the audience that, um, that he could do other than whatever he ended up doing, nothing external to God determines what God will do. And in that sense, he would have libertarian freedom. But if you're willing to say that uh, sans the physical universe, God has libertarian freedom, um, then I think you could give one of the same reasons I give for thinking like when you're arguing the Kalam, and, and then you give the conceptual analysis for what this cause must be. One of the ways I get to, it's a consciousness, it's a mind, which is frankly relevant to this video, is that I say, because there's nothing, there's no determinative thing outside of God, because there's no, there's no time, so there's no, nothing determining working on God leading to his, his choice. And it's not arbitrary either. There's, no ar there's nothing arbitrary. There's nothing random going on either. So the first cause must have libertarian freedom. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom? Well, minds do. Um, and so it sounds like you could affirm that, sans the physical universe. Yeah, well, like I said, I think that outside of um, created time, whether it's timelessness or whether it's some sort of hyper or meta time, um, God does have libertarian freedom to foreordain whatever he chooses to foreordain would come to pass. Um, and as you said, I, I like the way you put it. His um, libertarian free will does not mean that you um, uh, that you are bound by your nature to make certain choices. It just means that that binding is uh, is not the cause of some external. It's it's not the effect of some external cause. And in this case, it's it's all God himself. So, yeah, I think that that works. So uh, lastly on this, um, the thing I wanted to say about it is when you're talking about the these these things being grounded in God's nature, that you said something like that is what he is. Are these truths or something like that? Um, you know, just recently I heard a, a discussion between T-Jump and um, Emilio Ramirez, I think. Ram Ramos. OK, yeah. Calvinist presuppositionalist okay and uh really interesting discussion on the gospel truth i think is where it was and um and 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 so you know emilio gave the response that we would give on morality to say um that these moral truths flow from god's good nature and t-jump wanted to say well then you still got the same problem on the euthyphro dilemma because is his consciousness bound by this thing that stands over his consciousness his nature and i just thought to myself just like, okay, take the, the terminology that we're using with libertarian freedom that I know you don't accept it, but it sounds like you do, sans the physical universe, so I think you could go along with this. We would say nothing external to God determines what he's going to do. In a similar way, nothing external to God is grounding these moral uh, categories. Right. It's, it's still grounded in God. That's what matters. Um, and so I, I think there's just some some simple misunderstandings that can be cleared up that way. All right, let's move on to the next clip because I know you're running out of time um, pretty quickly. So uh, let's um, let's go. I got another half hour, so we should be able to make it through these. Yeah, yeah. And thank you all for sticking with us. We've still got a substantial audience for my channel. Um, and so, all right, uh, Occam's Razor. Resulting from the principle of sufficient reason is a law called Occam's Razor. Occam's razor simply means that existence will choose the most simple path or option. Okay, Chris, um, sorry about that. Is that what Occam's razor causes to happen because it's a law? That sounds so snarky. I don't think I'm sorry. As the day goes on, I get a little more sassy. <laughs> Forgive my Southern sass. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say, well, he's pretty, you know, this morgue guy is pretty sassy, but I, I remember that my parents taught me two wrongs don't make a right. That's um right. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that he gets this really wrong. For one thing, Occam's razor isn't a law, if I'm not mistaken. And secondly, he's mischaracterized it. It's not the view that existence takes the simplest option or chooses the simplest path. I mean, that's that's just simply not true. Occam's razor, as I understand it, and I'm willing to be corrected here, um, it, it actually uh, it actually works against what Morg is saying about it, because uh, and and about um, what conclusions could be drawn from it. Because Occam's razor says that for any given phenomenon, there are going to be a host of competing explanations. And those explanations will vary in degree of complexity. And by complexity here, we're talking specifically about the number of assumptions that have to be made in order to um, accept this, you know, any of these particular competing explanations. And what Occam's razor says is, um, it's it, if we just start at some random place within this list of competing hypotheses, we're, we may get hypotheses that are very difficult to falsify before we can then go on to another competing explanation and consider it. So what Occam's razor says is start at the simplest explanations, not because existence chooses the simplest path, but because the simplest explanations are the easiest to falsify. Now, this is really important because remember how this video started. For, for Morg, he really is convinced that he comes to his conclusions through 100% deductive certainty. But Occam, and here he's trying to apply Occam's razor as if it's consistent with that methodology, when in fact Occam's razor assumes that the explanations that Occam's razor favors are falsifiable and could be falsifiable. And that's its very purpose is to say, let's go look at the easiest to falsify explanations first so that we can get them out of the way if they're false and then move on to the ones that are harder to falsify. So I think that he's misdefined, mischaracterized and misapplied Occam's razor really badly all in the span of like nine seconds. Yeah, it's an epistemological thing. We're trying to figure out which explanation should we accept. And we have to keep in mind there could be a black swan out there. There could be something that is more complex or whatever that turns out to actually be the case. Um, which, of course, uh, anyone who's studied quantum mechanics knows that something really complex and weird uh, might be going on there. Hey, I wanted to answer a question real quick. And Chris, again, I mean, th this is something where you and I differ. And so um, maybe you can give your own take on this. Uh, maybe you can say, amen, brother, that doesn't work. But uh, Nathan Ormond says, can you explain how libertarian freedom makes any sense? Random or determined quandary? I have no idea. So what I take, Nathan, what I take you to be saying is, all right, look, Whenever you, whenever you decide to do something, there and I think Chris might agree with you, there, there are uh, going to be influences and you, you make a decision because of something. And in that sense, it's determined. The, the, other, the only other option is, okay, you've got all these influences out here, but then you don't even know what you're gonna do. It's just random, in which case you still don't have free will because you just have randomness. And some have said that, it, that there only seem to be two options. I've, like, it may be that determinism isn't true, but it seems that it's either determinism or random, and there's no in-between. Those are the only categories. And what the, the other category that I would offer, well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I think that um, it, it, for, for someone to presume what you're not doing because you're offering two options for someone to presume that determinism um, is a problem there or must be the case is simply to beg the question in favor of determinism you're saying what determined you to do that thing well um, nothing 
Well, it, there has to be something. That would be to beg the question in favor of determinism. However, you've avoided that by offering another option, which is it could also, I'm not saying it's definitely determined. I'm saying it could be random as well. And here's where we would say something that I don't think, I, I, you know, um, I don't know that you're going to buy. But um, for those of us who believe in God, we, we know that we believe that there is at least one thing that had libertarian free will, Chris and I were just discussing that, that, that caused the universe to come into existence freely. Nothing determined God to do that. Um, God was the first cause in that sense. Since we already believe that, we believe that libertarian freedom is a live option on the table. The question then just becomes, is it just God that has it or can human beings have it too? And so what we would say there is, in, when, we, when we look at something like God creating beings for relationship, and even if you don't grant Genesis 1, creating beings in some sense like himself, persons, like he's a person, we would say that one of the things that God gives us is the ability to create. Now, this could sound heretical real easy if you misunderstand what I'm saying here, because we talk in Christian theological circles about communicable attributes of God and incommunicable attributes of God. And while God has the ability to create universes from nothing, we would say we have the ability to create choices freely and that that's a creative uh, ability that we get from God. And so whenever you ask what determined you to choose one thing or the other, we would say that, well, it's self-determined. The chooser chose. And to deny that or to say that simply can't be the case would sound to me like begging the question in favor of determinism. So I, you know, your mileage may vary on that, but that's the answer that I give. I have a discussion with actually Stelman Smith where we go into a lot more detail on that over on his channel, The Unapologetic Apologist, if you want to uh, get into that. But many of us just say, I don't really see the problem. The chooser chooses, and that becomes a primitive action. A primitive action being something that once you get back to that, uh, there's, there's no further explanation required. Um, Chris, feel free to dice me up on that and offer him a, a, a Calvinist uh, possibility. No, I'm not. I'm not interested in um, presenting a Calvinist possibility. I, I'm happy here to to agree with you that um, I, I think there are two ways to look at what he's calling a quandary here. One is you could think of it as the um, uh, what's it called the um, false dichotomy fallacy, right? So if by determined he means determined in the way that you mean determined, as in determined by some external agent or by some external thing, um, then this is a, a, a false dichotomy because there's another middle ground, which is uh, between random and determined, which is influenced, but still uh, choosing, right? So the, the, the libertarian free person is certainly influenced by external factors, but ultimately it's not those external factors that determine the choice. Um, and so on this way of looking at the problem, it's a problem that is that, that commits the, the false dichotomy fallacy. The other way you could look at it is that, is you could just say it is determined, but as you said, the, what it's determined by is the agent him or herself and not some external agent or cause. And either way, it doesn't seem to me like that um, a problem for libertarian yeah, I was, free will. I was just pointing out that uh, I was just typing. Uh, we take influences into account. You know, uh, in that sense, we're soft libertarian. We we believe that the chocolate cake and the treadmill are both influencing us in different ways. I want to look like the young Jason Statham that I know I can be. On the other hand, I want to shove that chocolate all over my face and watch the crystal skull. So um, we have those influences, but that we get to choose among those influences. And I realize that that is... Um, uh, uh, let's say what not intuitive to some people, but anyway, let's move off of this. I hope that helped a little bit. Um, but let's, let's get on to the next question. Let's see where, let's see where it is. Consciousness. Can God be conscious? 
If God is mathematical law, then God doesn't need to be conscious. It doesn't need to be self-aware. A conscious, self-aware creator God, like the one described in the Bible, violates Occam's razor. Why is this? Because unconscious mathematics is all we need to generate the universe. Chris? Well, so now you can see what I mean by saying it just gets weirder and weirder from this point on. So apparently, unconscious mathematical law, which he'll go on to speak in even more bizarre terms about in a moment, um, is all that's needed to generate the universe. Now, first of all, I want to say, I just want to reiterate what I said before. He's misapplying the razor here. Um, the razor, well, not only that, but he's also using the razor in, in are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Oh, oh, I only see you, and so I wasn't sure if I was on the screen or not. Oh, yeah, um, you're not on the screen. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. Um, but he's remember, he's all about 100% deductive certainty, and yet here he's coming to a conclusion based on a razor, based on Occam's razor, that by its very definition does not provide 100% certainty, and, I wanted to, and so I wanted to call that out. But also, this is just a, simply a bald assertion um, that unconscious mathematical law is all that's needed to generate the universe. And not only is it just a bald assertion, by which I mean it's unsupported, he supplies, supplies no evidence in support of the claim or, or no deductive rational argument in support of the claim that that all that's needed to generate the universe is unconscious mathematical law. But I'll go further and say that I think that's in itself a a false statement and a, and a false one that can easily be falsified and by using the very thing that um, uh, that Morg has been appealing to, which is the principle of sufficient reason. If you've got um, an, a conscious mind before the generation of the universe, then that conscious mind can choose, as we've already discussed, to create the universe. And the fact that he or she or it, however you cash out this this conscious mind, um, wants to create the universe is the is the sufficient reason that makes this a reasonable action uh, for uh, to have happened. But let's say it's unconscious mathematical law. Well, what that means, if this is if if unconscious mathematical law exists prior to the generation of the universe then then the only possible way the universe can be generated is if it's a necessity uh, if if it's a necessary result of the existence of this unconscious mathematical law but if you have nothing yet because the universe has not yet been generated and remember we're not talking about some sort of immaterial conscious mind like the god of the bible in morg's view we're talking about abstractions right the unconscious mathematical law there's nothing that there's there's nothing about unconscious mathematical law that necessitates the generation of the universe and yet he's arguing that unconscious mathematical law generated the universe but that means it doesn't have sufficient reason um, to explain the generation of the universe from unconscious mathematical law so not only is it simply a bald assertion that unconscious mathematical law can generate the universe but it seems to me to be demonstrably false because the only way that could be is if the generation of the universe was necessarily the result of that unconscious mathematical law and you can't demonstrate any such thing you know, so a question here is, are we talking about, so, I, you know, th this guy is new to me, so I'm trying to piece together <laughs> while I'm listening to this. Are we talking about a universe with an infinite past? Because this is kind of like the whole thing with, um, you know, where, where you know, uh, Lawrence Krauss would talk about the universe coming from nothing, but then you've got um, a roiling sea of fluctuating positive and negative energy and all these kind of things, which means you have space already, you know, it, it, and so you have an infinite past. Is is that, I mean, what, what? 
I don't think he's even given that thought, uh, to be all perfectly honest with you. I don't th- if I think that he's just he's talking about a genuine beginning to the universe because remember he's he he well I shouldn't say remember we haven't gotten to where it gets really crazy we will see that in a second but prior to the point where the universe has been generated he's all that he thinks that exists prior to that point is this unconscious mathematical law but doesn't he describe well, it and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself but doesn't he describe it as a waveform well, but that's going to be part of our critique okay. when we get there. So don't right. don't let it uh, don't don't go too far ahead of ourselves. I'm sorry, but I, I, but uh, uh, what do you call it when you when you ruin something for someone? I don't know. You spoiled. I spoil. Yeah, spoiler alert. All right, let's. Uh, well, no, I didn't spoil anything yet. But let's. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that before there's if all that exists is unconscious mathematical law, then there's um, there is no space, there is no time, and there is no necessity by which this unconscious mathematical law brings about the universe. So I think it's self defeating. But if what you're hinting at were his ex, his basis for claiming that there is something uh, that could generate the mathematical or g- generate the universe from unconscious mathematical law. Then he runs into other issues, and we'll, we'll get there here in the next clip. What mathematics is ontologically, what it actually is, is frequency. It's energy. To be precise, it's sinusoidal waveforms. Ooh, Chris, <laughs> that sounded really impressive. It does, especially to people who enjoy math, like I do. I I, uh, I took calculus when I was in 11th grade, and um, I, I really enjoy it. But I'm no mathematician by any stretch of the imagination. But what I can tell you is everything that he uh, starts talking about here in terms of math, I think is just plain gobbledygook. It's just words that, that don't have any real meaning to them. Um, so, for example, he, he uses the words frequency, energy, and waveforms. And he says that this is what mathematical law is. But this is prior to the generation of the universe, in his view. And yet frequency, energy, waveforms, these all describe things in the universe, right? A frequency isn't a concrete entity in in and of itself. If people refer to a frequency, that's a merism, I think is the word, apart from the whole uh, thing. When you refer to a frequency as if it's a concrete thing, what you're really talking about is a thing that oscillates at a particular frequency. Um, it's it, A frequency is the measurement of the number of times that something oscillates over a period of time. Um, energy also isn't a concrete entity in and of itself. It's a property of matter, right? So how fast an object is moving, how much heat is produced by a, a, com- a process of combustion, the warmth that an object um, has because its molecules are vibrating faster than a, than a colder object. And waves are themselves disturbances of either matter so you could think of, for example, waves in the ocean or sound waves where air molecules in the air are moving in wave patterns or seismic waves, right? The waves that you can see in an earthquake and the ground or their disturbances of fields like the waves in the electromagnetic field that constitute visible light and electromagnetic energy. All of the, the various kinds of forms we can think of are they assume pre-existing matter or fields, um, nothing of which uh, um, Morg has given any indication is part of this unconscious mathematical law that somehow pre-existed the generation of the universe and caused it. And then one last thing I'll add really quickly, and then I'll turn things over to you for your uh, no doubt more astute critique than mine, is that yes, sinusoidal waveforms does sound impressive, but I think that's intentional because all sinusoidal waveforms are, are sine waves. (laughs) 
it's it's sinusoidal is just the like the adjectival form of the word sine. So a sinusoidal wave is just a wave that has the characteristics of a sine wave. And again, a sine wave, all it does is describe the oscillating of something, um, pre-existing matter. So this whole thing is, it, it really is just gobbledygook and I wouldn't be surprised. Remember, I think this guy's a cult leader. I think he's as consciously aware of his, uh, the, the falseness of what he's telling people because he's trying to make money and he's making a lot of it. Every bit as much so as L. Ron Hubbard was. Um, and so I think that this is all really intentional. It's made, it's meant to make what he's saying sound legit and impressive and make you think that, oh gosh, if I'm just smart enough, I'll get it. When in reality, it really is just gobbledygook. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a more eloquent expression or whatever than what you said, because honestly, when we start talking about math, I get a bit lost. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit that. But I will say this much. I'm still wanting to know, he's talking about these laws of math generating the physical universe. And of course, we understand he's some sort of an idealist. But I'm still trying to figure out what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you, what do you mean when you say, uh, I mean, is it, okay, if it generated the physical universe, is he saying the waveform preexisted or just the laws that the waveform describes or, or that the, the describe the waveform? Because he seems to speak about them as though they're one and the same. He says math is this waveform. Right. So I, yeah, it's, it's, it's just ludicrous it's just absurd i don't think that he's really thought through it well enough he just wants to sound oppressive enough to try and convince people to give him money uh, to be, if i'm just being honest right on all right let's uh let's let's get on with it to math as living energy so mathematics is not abstract numbers on paper they are living frequency patterns defined by sinusoidal waveforms. That's what we mean by math. It's living energy that obeys precise laws. So Chris, since I'm, since, I mean, I, I, you know, the criticism I just gave is about as much as I can say about this stuff. So, um, so, so take it away for me. Explain what I don't understand about this. Well, uh, he's just getting, this is, it just gets weirder and weirder the longer it goes. I mean, right off the bat, He's he's gone from arguing that um, sine waves. Uh, he he's, he's, he said math is these sine waves, these sinusoidal waves, and then he's saying so. So he thinks that there's somehow a progression of logic. Therefore, he says math is living frequency patterns. Well, where did that come from? I mean, he's just now introduced life, the quality of living into the argument without having introduced it previously. And he has no, he, he doesn't in any way explain what he means. In fact, he, he says, quote, living energy that obeys precise laws. Well, wait a minute. Is the mathematical law the laws that this living energy obeys, or is it the living energy that obeys those laws? If it's the living energy, then is there a God above the mathematical laws that are that the living energy obeys? And if it's the living energy, well, how is how is it law? Because energy isn't law, right? Law energy is a property of a thing of 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 a of a moving thing, whereas um, laws are a description of the way something behaves. Which is it? You know, this is just he's just trying to throw a lot of um, highfalutin language at the viewer to make them think that this is all logical and coherent when it's the exact opposite of that. I think our friend the nerdy theist, who's now come back has boiled it down quite nicely. What? Math obeys laws? I thought everything obeyed math. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah, uh, it's it's nonsense. Yeah, let, let's, let's uh, okay. Uh, okay, mental frequency. 
Now, a sinusoidal wave considered across one full cycle is equal to zero. This is important. Because it's equal to zero across a full cycle, it's dimensionless. It's not something physical, it's mental. So what mathematics truly is, is mental frequency, frequency of mind. Just gets weirder and weirder, don't it? Well, and I'm noticing <laughs> now um, a lot of the, someone mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the same terminology we see in new age stuff. You know, a lot of that new agey type of stuff and then mixed with this bizarre form of atheism. Which is which is ironic because he's a very adamant opponent of the new age um, as, as he is an opponent of materialism and, and other things. He's he's an opponent of everything. And yet what he does is he wants to incorporate what he he wants to incorporate elements of everything, the very things that he thinks that he's an opponent of. He's but doing the whole but, Hegelian mix of things to make something that you've never heard of before, because the new thing is the thing that criticizes everything and everybody that hates all those other things are going to give you money. Is that basically what we're doing? I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and I like I was going to say what Nathan Ormond has already said in the YouTube chat, which is that a sinusoidal wave over one period is not equal to zero. This is important. Um, a sine wave, remember, is the description of an entity's oscillation over time. And even in the graph that he was just animating on the screen a moment ago, what it means is that at, at the moment that one full cycle of the wave has completed, at that point, the or at that at that point in time, the entity is at the same position that it started at. But that doesn't make the whole wave equal to zero. It just means that at this particular point in the graph of the wave, the 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 entity is at the same position at which it began. Um, so again, we're talking about stuff that pre-assumes pre-existing things, which is the very thing that he's trying to get away from. All that stuff and then also that you just said about that you and Nathan are talking about with it doesn't come back to zero <laughs> and all that. I, I'm going to trust you guys on that. But the last part makes total sense to me. It pre uh, it, it assumes it presupposes existing stuff and space. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and it's also not true, as he claimed it's true, that. The, the fact that the the sine wave allegedly equals zero after one full cycle is the reason why it's immaterial. No, that's not. The reason sine waves are immaterial is because they're abstract. A, a sine wave, again, is the description of something and a, and, and a description of a concrete thing, not a concrete thing in and of itself. That's why it's immaterial. Um, and what this also means is that they aren't mental in the sense of being mind, which is what... Um, uh, which is what Morg seems to be arguing here, that these frequencies, these waves are mental, they are mind. That's not what these things, that's not the sense in which these are in fact mental. The sense in which these are mental is the sense in which they're the, they're the content of thought, right? A mind isn't a sine wave, but a mind conceives of or thinks about or or imagines a sine wave, is aware of a sine wave. That's the sense in which signs are immaterial. And what's important about that then is that mathematical law requires the exist existence of a transcendent mind precisely because mathematical law, sine waves, all these things are the content of thought and you can't have content of thought without thought going on. So this actually ends up working in um, against his own thesis and it works in favor of uh, Christian theism. Great. Um, people offering to explain sinusoidal waveforms to me. Um, and I have no interest. <laughs>
<laughs> I have no interest. All right, uh, let's let's go on to. Uh, did we already do mental frequency? Yeah. So now we are at Fourier transform. Oh, brother. That's More right. Ma oh my gosh. By a mathematical process called a Fourier transform, we can transform mathematical frequency information into mathematical space-time information. Okay, stop <laughs> Stop with the graphs. Enough with the graphs. I'm sick of the graphs. And if I yeah. hear sinusoidal one more time today, I'm going to go crazy. But, um, okay, what is this? L let me guess. Gobbledygook. It is it is gobbledygook, uh, and and this is again where I think he's just trying to throw impressive sounding terms that you can actually go and look up and be like, oh, he's talking about real things. He must be on it. He must be telling you the truth. No, this is nonsense. What he's alleged here is, and, and I'm not a mathematician, but I know enough about math to be able to do a little bit of research before before a YouTube video like this. And Fourier transform. Wait, hold on, not, hold on a second. You're telling me. You didn't do that work before the YouTube video, Braxton, you lazy bum. Hey, you said that, not me. <laughs> Nate, don't but, worry, um, though. Nathan has offered to to point me in the direction of a YouTube video that's going to make this understandable, I hope. Um, yeah, there's there's actually there's actually some videos that make Fourier transform um, uh, fairly easily understandable. But what they demonstrate is that it has absolutely nothing to do with what Morgue is claiming that it has to do with here. What Morgue is saying is that by the process of Fourier transform, you can transform these sinusoidal waves. By the way, there's a whole um, there's a whole like taxonomy of of reality that this guy has come up with and that you can learn about if you go to the if you look into this hyperionism stuff and what i mean by that is he he defines this unconscious mathematical law and these sinusoidal waveforms he calls it uh the the solace or something like that if i remember correctly and then the the the, the generated universe he calls the holus um and and he says that fourier transform is how you get from the one to the other he says that you you take these sinusoidal waveforms and you're able to transform them from what he calls mathematical frequency information into mathematical space-time information, but that's all ludicrous. What Fourier transform allows you to do is to decompose a very complex formula, a very complex uh, graph into a series of simpler ones or, 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 or constituent simpler ones um, or the inverse. You could take a bunch of simple ones and make them into a more complex one. So here's an analogy that, that I found helpful when I was trying to understand what this is. Um, th take a smoothie. Um, if you want to change, uh, if, if you want to understand what's going on in a smoothie, you 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 decompose it into its constituent parts. Are we you talking about a smoothie, smoothie like to drink a smoothie? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm with you so far. Go ahead. Okay. So so you take a smoothie and you pour it through a series of filters, each of which um, uh, filters out that one specific ingredient, like a banana filter, an orange filter, and so forth. Well, you pour the smoothie into the filter. You you pour this complex admixture into a filter, a series of filters, and you find out that it's made up of, say, an ounce of banana, two ounces of orange, three ounces of milk, and three ounces of water, right? So what you've done is you've decomposed the complex substance into simpler parts so you can better understand the whole, right? Um, 
a smoothie recipe then is a description of that list of constituent parts, right? One, one ounce banana, two ounce uh, orange, and so forth. So a recipe is like a description of the simple parts that make up a more complex thing. Now, what he, what he is saying Fourier transform allows you to do is to go from a recipe directly to the complex thing. Because he's saying you can take this unconscious, these the sinusoidal forms that are mental things and um, transform them into physical things. It's like taking a recipe and immediately jumping to a smoothie. But that doesn't work. The recipe just describes the parts that make up a smoothie. And in the same way, these sinusoidal functions and things, they aren't concrete things. They describe pre-existing things. In this case, simpler functions, simpler behaviors that sum up um, that, 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 that when they combine, they, they produce something more complex, all right? So it's a way of decomposing something complex into simple or from going from simple to okay, complex. Okay, that, but that's very different from going from immaterial to material yeah, that, and, and all the things that, that he talks That about. was actually really helpful. That was a really good explanation. And that's one thing you're good at is taking really complex stuff and making them simple. But someone asked a question that may explain why. Um, Slam RN wants to know what was Chris's day job before and currently perhaps. <laughs> She's yeah. So the Slam RN is is tagging my wife Star and asking her that question. Oh. I'm a software engineer. Is Star in here? Yeah. Is she in the chat? I don't. Yeah. She she just yeah. In fact, she just commented saying he was and still is involved in software. So occasionally hey, Star, Star will watch these things that I do and yeah. yeah hi hi baby. Welcome to Trinity Radio. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, but and you said you studied math in college. Is that right? No, not in college. So I, I was a, a AP math geek and in, in high school, and I did calculus in eleventh grade. And then by the time I started college, I was into drugs and stuff. I wasn't a believer yet. Drugs, partying, and girls, and dropped out of college. So I never got to go anywhere further than that. But that grounding in math and in and in analytical thought and logic and stuff like that has really helped me in the world of software. And that is, I think, a big reason why I'm um, uh, as good of a debater as I am. So and you are an incredible debater. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So, all right. We've got one more clip, Chris. Can we make it through? I think we can. All right. Yep. Let's let's jump into it now. You aren't what you think you are. You see, you are an eternal system of living mathematical frequencies. You are a mathematical mind. And this world is the result of our collective frequencies according to the laws what of ontological Fourier mathematics. This world <laughs> is not physical at all. It's a collective dream. It's our dream. A creator god did not create this world, we did. We just did it unconsciously. Just like you unconsciously generate a dream world every time you go to sleep. Um, first of all, <laughs> I, I want you to know that if you're an atheist out there, he talked about like basically drugs and all these things and girls. You can still be into girls when you, when you become a Christian. There's just rules about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, That's Chris. Right. Uh, so, and this would be a good time for us to talk a little bit about uh, maybe the, the difference between what he's telling us and Christian idealism, like George Barclay and, um, and like inspiring philosophy. I don't know if you, how familiar you are with inspiring philosophy. A little bit. Um, but, but anyway, uh, so you mentioned that you wanted to cover this clip. Did it get weirder still? Uh, well, so this, uh, no, his other videos, I think, are where it gets, well, I mean, I suppose, yes, he's, he, notice what he tells tells the viewer is you are 
the manifestation in this dream world of an unconscious mathematical frequency mind, whatever he wants, whatever this nonsense is that he's yammering on about. So yes, it does get weirder. But the the reason why I wanted to play this clip was just because I want to highlight an equivocation that's going on. Uh, and this is something that'll be helpful for people who are trying to think critically. Uh, it'll be helpful for them to look out for equivocations like this. Notice that what he did was he used the reality of us experiencing dreams while we're asleep as the basis for claiming that unconscious mathematical mind can generate the the universe like like we generate a dream when we're sleeping but this equivocates on the word unconscious right so the word unconscious when applied to um these mathematical laws that he's talking about a better word for unconscious would be something like non-conscious. That is, it's not even capable of consciousness. Something like a rock or a tree is unconscious. But that's not the same thing as when we talk about unconscious sleeping people who dream. They are minds that ordinarily are conscious and they're presently at a state of rest. Um, they, they aren't non-conscious like unconscious minds or, or like, like mathematical law is that he's saying generated the universe. So to go from ordinarily conscious minds that are at a state of rest producing a dream world to non-conscious or incapable of conscious entities like un, like abstractions that are uh, mathematical law um, is, is, a, is an illogical leap, which is ironic for somebody who claims to be so much about reason. But I'll take it a step further and say that um, when dreaming, as any scientist will tell you, the mind is actually extremely active, um, and, and as shown by measurements of the sleeping brain, which show that there's a great deal of neural activity, firing neurons and stuff going on in the brain, to which there's no comparable analogy in this um, unconscious mathematical mind prior to the generation of the universe world that Morg is talking about. So on multiple levels, um, this, this idea that unconscious mathematical law generating the universe is hardly different from unconscious sleeping minds generating dream worlds is just it's just absurd uh, it sounds interesting because he's using some big words and phrases and concepts that are relatable to us but that's really how every false teaching works it takes some things that are attractive and compelling and true and then um buries it inside of a whole bunch of um or or, or buries inside of it a whole bunch of nonsense and gobbledygook so and that's what th morgan's so doing this would here have all the problems that we've discussed throughout the video and that you brought yeah. out so well and then um to 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 counter that to a Christian version of idealism, any Christian version of idealism, the, the idea would be that you have something there that explains, number one, the teleology. It avoids the, the problem of how did the physical universe come to exist, all those kind of things, because it's the mind of God that stands behind all of these things. And so there's a big difference in those two. Um, not that we're committing ourselves to Christian idealism. I'm just saying this is different than... And, and, and listen, this issue of it not being conscious it not being conscious um and the, the, does this exist in space or is it the laws or is it the mat is it the thing is it the waveform is it the you know all, all of those things are serious problems that i think we need we need answers for and i don't think we're going to get those answers um but uh someone put um i was gonna i was gonna throw it up there matthew a minute ago said all is maya this is why i you know this is the sort of talk that does sound something like um, Eastern thought or new age stuff, you know, it, it's, you know, we're all creating this stuff together with our minds and math is everything. And I, yeah, as I mean, when I start talking about it, I start sounding as dumb as he does. So I'm going to stop right now. But 
Um, do you have anything else you want to say to summarize or to, or to promote or to, or what anything? Uh, well, I've already promoted the rethinkinghillconference.com and Rethinking Hill and, and all that stuff. So no, I think the thing that I would want to leave people with is um, an awareness that somebody can, I mean, obviously th this person is not very winsome and charismatic to some of us, you know, those of us who are maybe older and more traditional, but to some people, he's very charismatic and, and, and compelling. And then on top of that, he uses Com, you know, complex topics like mathematical topics, sinusoidal waves and, and Fourier transform and all of this stuff that you can go and look up. And at first glance, you're like, oh, wow, these things are real. But, but these are all just techniques to try and deceive, even if he's not consciously doing it, although I think he is, I think he's like L. Ron Hubbard. Um, nevertheless, they're just techniques meant to deceive. And what we as Christians or, or anybody, what we should be doing when we're evaluating truth claims is thinking critically and not just blindly accepting what we're told. And don't give in to his manipulations by saying, you know, when he says, if you're smart enough, you can understand and, and, and accept this. Well, don't buy into that. You don't have to be, I'm not, some people will say I'm really smart, but Braxton's obviously not, and he can understand, so no, I'm just kidding. So you, you had, but you don't need, don't give into this manipulation and accept what he's saying just because it means, it, 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 because you want to be smart or something like that. Think critically, look up the terms and the phrases that he's using, um, and, and think carefully about them, uh, because what you'll find is that these kinds of false systems are just riddled with incoherence and equivocations um, and, and all sorts of other logical absurdities, as, as we've seen. So um, don't be afraid of stuff like this. If you have a friend like I did who said, hey, I'm a little troubled by this, can we talk about it? Think about it, and, you know, watch it, think about it, think critically, and then be able to demonstrate all the kinds of flaws that Braxton and I have been able to demonstrate. Um, and, and Christianity will hold up under scrutiny, whereas nonsense like this will not. Yeah, and I want to say, um, if you want to know more about Chris Date, um, Chris, I wanted to put both of your podcasts links in the description. Oh. I only have the Rethinking Hell one right now, but I also have a link down there to all of Chris's books. He has several, and if you like debates, number one, Chris has a bunch of debates on a variety of topics and also has some books that are um, expansions of some of his debates. Most recently, he had a debate with Dale Tuggy on whether Jesus was just a man and not God, right? And um, so, so you'll want to go check that stuff out and uh, follow Chris and see what all he has to say if you've enjoyed it today. And I know you have. Um, thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks for the super chats that we got. I really appreciate that. Thanks for everyone showing up. Nathan, I love you, man. I love you. And I love everyone in the chat. And Chris, hey, you're my favorite Calvinist, I think at least one of in the, in the close circle. And I know you got to get back to work. Thanks for taking the time to show up and, and discuss this with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Right. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. And we'll see you next time on Trinity radio. <laughs>